We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank wants to know how you reward yourself because they have cards that make every day more rewarding. Are you a points order, cashback guru, low intro APR lover? With U.S. Bank, it's up to you because they have the cards to fit your lifestyle. So earn more whether you're shopping at a gas station or grocery store, even while planning a staycation. Learn more at usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Geico presents sharing versus oversharing. Earlier this week, Claire Tippins shared a princess nickname generator, three pictures of her dog wearing a tutu, and two online quizzes, including what candy is your dream castle made of? Claire, your sharing has tipped the sugar scale and turned into oversharing. But have no fear, princess. Geico has something worth sharing with your internet kingdom, like how you could save hundreds on your car insurance just by visiting geico.com. No magic wand required. Geico, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. Welcome to the Rotowire Fantasy Football Podcast, brought to you as always by DraftKings.com, the leader in daily fantasy sports. Be sure to use the promo code Rotowire when you deposit on DraftKings for a free contest entry today. It is Monday, September 21st. Nick Whalen here, as I always am on Mondays, with Derek Van Riper. We're going to recap all of the games from week two. A lot of action, concluding with that Sunday night game in Green Bay between the Packers and the Seahawks. One game on Monday night, Jets, Colts, that were still. Uh, waiting to see the result of, but we'll go over all of the games from Sunday. Just a reminder, before we get into any of that, the podcast is now available for subscription on both iTunes and Stitcher. So if you're listening on either of those platforms, please don't hesitate to give us a nice review. 
DVR, it's Monday morning. How's it going? Oh, it's going great. I mean, the Packers beat the Seahawks, so my rooting interest came through. Uh, most of my fantasy teams did pretty well for season long. Daily this week wasn't as good as last week. We'll see what happens Monday night. But overall, pretty good Monday. How about you? Yeah, I, uh, I, had, I had to do another podcast. I was kind of cheating on the Rotowire football podcast earlier this morning at, at 7 a.m. So I'm, I'm dragging a little bit, but I'm on cup of coffee number three. So I think we'll be able to power through. My rooting interest also came through um, really out of nowhere. The Jags took down Miami at home so that was very interesting we'll, we'll break down that game in a little bit did not have a good week uh from a fantasy perspective <laughs> at all um i'm out of the road wire survivor pool in week one Ooh. uh we started with we started with week two uh well i mean i went with new orleans i think i was just looking at the list with uh with road own chris benzine out, out in the office and i think he said 40 plus people were eliminated and i think there's only i think like seven or eight remaining now head, heading into the monday night game yeah so 85% usage of the Saints or 90% usage well, well, of the Saints? Well, either Saints, Dolphins, Dolphins. Ravens. Yeah. Um, Ra- Ravens on the road on the West Coast. Right. I thought the Ravens would win that game, but early in the season, what are you doing taking road teams in Survivor? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's also the Raiders, though. And I think, I think their week one performance was kind of... It was awful. It, I mean, it was awful, but it was also like David Carr was only in half the game. You know, so I think you, you look at the end result of that game and you just think this team has no chance, but... No, strong, strong fought game from them. A lot of interesting games. I don't think a lot of people saw, uh, you know, Tampa Bay playing the way they did. I think maybe people were fooled by Tennessee in Week One a little bit. Um, I don't think that's not necessarily a survivor pick, but you know, losing by double digits in Cleveland was was fairly unexpected. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at at the results here, and this was a relatively difficult week again for Survivor. Week One was tough actually too, uh, until the the Brady suspension. You know, was overturned. And once that happened, I think the Patriots against the Steelers were a viable option. Packers on the road against the Bears were a common one, and then the one I liked, the Jets were home against the the Browns. I thought that was a pretty good play for Week One. But this week, it's like, you know, Philly at home against Dallas would have been a tough call. Green Bay even at home against Seattle, if you hadn't used them, I think was still a tough call, just given their history. Miami, they're so unreliable. I just, I, I wish. They had a good coach because I think talent-wise, they could be the team that could actually push the Patriots a little bit more. I mean, the Bills have improved and the Jets have improved too, but I feel like Miami has the most talent on its roster of the three teams other than the Patriots in that division. Yeah, this is the Dolphins team now that you know, it, they, they didn't look great in Week 1. They kind of squeaked out a victory there over Washington, and all of a sudden now it's you know Week 2 and you're losing to the Jaguars. And I totally agree with you. I think they were a team that was going to be on the cusp of a wild card berth. I think you know they're kind of in there with Buffalo fighting for that second spot in the AFC East behind New England. But, I mean, this is this is a tough loss. This, you don't just lose to the Jaguars in Week 2 and uh, and come back from that. And they you know they host the Bills next week and the Jets the week after. So, I mean, things... Things are going to get pretty real for Miami, I guess, in the next few weeks here. Um, and you know, you look down the schedule; they got dates with the Titans and the Texans. So, I mean, they, there's certainly still time, and it's only week two, um, but not a good look to lose to lose to the Jaguars there. Yeah, um, I'm with you there. I mean, it was on the road though, right? Tough, tough place to play, Duval. It's uh, <laughs> Everbank Field, nasty Ever, environment for a visiting team. Yeah, I couldn't get any attendance numbers, uh, but it didn't look it didn't look like it was a completely packed house. I mean, a lot going on on a, on a Sunday afternoon in Jacksonville. Well, you can go to the beach, right? Yeah, within, you within can. an hour. I mean, how far is the beach from well, Jacksonville? Full disclosure: I've never actually been to Jacksonville. <laughs> been so, like, there. no, I've, never, I've been to like the state of Florida multiple times. Never been to Jacksonville, uh, so I really have 
no reason whatsoever. Google's Jacksonville um, to beach distance. Yeah, well, honestly, I'm, I'm on Google Maps right now, uh, friend of the podcast, Google Maps. And, well, first of all, fun fact, did you know Jacksonville is the largest city in the U.S. in terms of total area? I did so not know that. It is. Um, so, I mean, you could be, you know, if you're in West Jacksonville, you could be miles from the beach. You know, it could be a couple of an hour or so because, I mean, it's it's not right on the beach. It's, you know, it's inland trying to, to get a distance here as I just like make up distances. Uh, well, if you're, within, if, you're within, if you're within one hour of the beach, you're close enough oh, on the yeah. beach to go right, on Sunday. Right, but it's not like a beach city necessarily. Right, right. It's not San Diego where you can, mm-hmm. you're just there. You're on the right. coast. Right, exactly. So, but yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty going on in Jacksonville, especially relative to, to Green Bay. Well, we should have some kind of geography podcast. I'm sure it'd be popular with, uh, you know, like yeah. elementary school yeah. kids. And uh, there'd be some people out there for it. I don't know what kind of advertisements you'd get. Maybe like if you have... A, globe like a, manufacturers. Globe companies. Uh, if you got so a lot of kids of listening, maybe Frosted Flakes would jump on board as a sponsor. Uh, I don't know. Light up shoes. Who makes those? Like they, they could be interested. Starter? Champion? Yeah, Starter starter I, you know I, I miss starter i liked i liked things better when starter was a prominent nfl did you brand. own one of those oversized like pullover jackets with a huge kangaroo pocket in the front yes i had a miami hurricanes one and that was back when the u was oh, still the u I mean, that was like incredible. early 90s that was a sweet jacket i had a packers one that i remember i just hated wearing because you know the enemy was green bay for some reason in, in elementary <laughs> school and I was ashamed, but it was a great jacket. You still see a lot of Charlotte Hornets. Uh, I think they, they, for some reason, they were like the team that that starter picked out and was like, "We're gonna make, we're gonna make a lot of these jackets for every team, but we're gonna make like ten more or ten times more for the Hornets." Because you still see those around. Yeah, see, I think with the Hornets at that time, at least what I remember from elementary school, middle school, is that, that girls seemed to like wearing the starter jackets too, and they liked the Hornets and they liked the Suns. I don't know if it's because like the purple and teal and orange and the colors Chicks of those two love teams. Teal. So I think that helped, too. And then they were kind of a cool team at the time, too. So there would be guys who would wear it because of Larry Johnson and Alonzo Mourning. And I think those two factors really kind of pushed up the popularity of that jacket for that window from, like, 1993 to 1997. Yeah, yeah. I think this – I mean, we could go on and on about this. You did mention Frosted Flakes as a potential uh, sponsorship for the the forthcoming Rotowire Geography podcast. And I know that that reminded me of another breakfast item that we talked about earlier today, and that's Gogurt. I I mean I have nothing nice to say about Gogurt, so if we're using the, um, the the old rule, you know, if you have nothing nice to say, say nothing at all. I, I would say nothing, but I don't think we abide by that on this pod. I, I say mean things about people and things constantly. Gogurt to me is one of the worst food inventions of the last one hundred years, arguably uh, a bottom five food in in current existence. Uh, I don't understand the purpose of it. I don't really understand why you'd want to eat yogurt out of a tube. But, you know, maybe I'm not their target market. I don't think I've ever had yogurt before. I don't know if I've ever even eaten yogurt, let alone you never, You've never had yogurt before? No. I don't know. That's. I mean, you know how I feel about cheese. And yogurt is like No, no. Of, how do you feel about cheese? You don't like cheese? Uh, you know, I mean, did you you just grew up around so much cheese that you just? You I think hate it was it? like a super saturation thing, right? Exactly. Like I don't. I guess you maybe you weren't in the office last time we ordered pizza. You, you can kind of see where I'm going with this. What did you get? Just breadsticks or something? Well, no. I mean, you, there's there are ways of removing the cheese from the pizza. Right, but why would you do that? Because it doesn't taste that good. I don't know. You like grab a fork, eat the toppings off, and then scrape the cheese off and eat the sauce bread. I maybe you should try yogurt. You might you might like it. 
Possibly. Well, the nice thing is like some of the pizza, like now that, you know, technology is finally caught up to consumers, pizza tastes, you can like, you can order pizzas online just without cheese. Right. It's, right. it's incredible. Yeah. Well, and, and I think there are some like more traditional style pizzas that don't have cheese. Like I, there's a place uh, near where I live, it's called Novanta and they make Neapolitan style pizzas, like authentic Italian pizzas. Those will go without cheese sometimes. Usually it's a, it's a good tomato sauce, maybe some meat, like a, like a spicy salami or uh, some sausage little arugula some garlic on there and they also do olive oil based ones too which are i think those are good those those certainly have their place so i think the cheeseless pizza can be done but if you just get a traditional pizza and pick off the cheese man i, I don't know i don't know what right. you're I'm getting not use, i'm not eating a ton of of artisan pizzas it's mostly um you know tombstone tombstone Jacks, right orbs you know Bucky Badger is a local local pizza empire. The, the Bucky Badger empire is is vast. I mean, you've got the Badger Max drinks, which I think may be separate, but then you've got like the Bucky Badger tortilla chips and, and pretzels. It's a um, it's amazing. Like the the amount of food Bucky puts out there. Ice cream, of course, from from Babcock, always he does, delicious. He does it all. I mean, not only is he out there doing push ups at games and just generally spreading cheer around the campus. I mean, he's also a major manufacturer of snack foods. Right, and I think he he creates them in, in pretty fair working conditions too, which I, I, I admire in this day and age when when many leaders uh, choose not to run their businesses that way. Bucky seems to be uh, a pretty good guy in that regard. Yeah, he's. I mean, he's as good as they get, and he, I mean, everybody's been saying that for years, and I think I think it's more clear than ever do you want to get into the week two games begrudgingly yes all right we'll start in carolina where the panthers moved to 2-0 24 to 17 over houston they've now knocked off two straight afc south opponents not a great game from ryan mallett 58 attempts though uh, obviously the texans fell behind in this one but it was never like to the point where they needed to throw every single down i think they just they couldn't move the ball on the ground and just thought I might as well put it in the arm of Mallet. 27 of 58, 244 yards, a touchdown and a pick for him. Well, if you think about it as a team, they ran for 61 yards on 23 carries. Mallet, even with 58 attempts, only threw for 244 yards. So on a per attempt basis, still more effective to go through the air, even though that was brutal inefficiency from Mallet. I mean, we talked about Brian Hoyer and the, the quick hook that he received in the opener. This seems like an ongoing battle. I think you get stability at the quarterback position after you establish the run, and that's not going to happen until we see Arian Foster back in the mix of the Texans. Could be another couple of weeks before that happens. So they are in a bad way right now. As a result, I think their defense is a lot less valuable because their defense is going to spend more time on the field. Defense playing tired, not going to be as effective in the pass rush. DeAndre Hopkins, even on a day where Ryan Mallett threw for 244 yards, had just five catches for 53 yards on 11 targets. Nate Washington led the way. That's never a good thing for a receiving core. Cecil Shorts on the receiving end of 12 targets. He caught six balls for 34 yards. This was an absolute disastrous offensive performance overall for Houston. And to make matters worse, for anyone who used Alfred Blue, he had five carries for six yards. He didn't even get the touchdown. Ryan Mallett had a rushing touchdown in this game, which just horrible just horrible across the board i i couldn't be happier that i saw exactly zero snaps of this game as it happened yeah yeah thank god this was not on national television because the panthers play ugly games and they're, they're still a fun team to watch just because of cam newton i think but if it wasn't for cam on this team like you replace him with pretty much any other even a decent starting quarterback i mean this is just one of the most unwatchable teams in the league and obviously houston's in that category right now with arian foster hurt and with Ryan Mouts slinging the ball 58 times. Um, but yeah, I mean, a, a quiet game from DeAndre Hopkins. I guess it's kind of the byproduct of, of Mallet being as inefficient as he was. 
nothing from Alfred Blue. Chris Polk, 38 yards on 14 carries. Don't love that. Um, and yeah, like you said, Ryan Mallett, vulturing touchdowns from Alfred Blue. So pretty much you know, not, not a whole lot to like here on the Houston side from a fantasy perspective. Cam Newton had a decent game for Carolina, snuck in a rushing touchdown with, along with a couple passing TDs. So productive game from him, but these are two these are two teams that are just going to be grinding it out offensively all season and the Panthers amazingly 2-0 and after uh after this win so you look at what the Texans have coming up they get a home matchup against Tampa Bay that should cure some of these woes but at the same time the Bucks bounced back and we'll talk about that here momentarily I mean Cam Newton he just is the offense right now Jonathan Stewart's getting plenty of volume 17 carries for 62 yards I think he'll get better results against weaker defenses like that he's getting the volume, like that he's pretty healthy at this point. The pass catchers offer you nothing to get excited about. They're not using Devin Funchess as much as, much as I expected. Four targets, one catch, 15 yards. Greg Olson bounced back from a disappointing opener. 14 targets, six catches for 70. But then you got Philly Brown and Ted Ginn hauling in TD passes. I mean, there's just nothing there that you can rely on outside of Newton, Stewart, and Greg Olson. Yeah, and there's not not much to like about this Carolina receiving core right now. And and we talked so much about Funches before the season and whether he was going to be ready to step in for Calvin Benjamin. And I think it's pretty evident at this point that he's just frankly not ready for that. And that's not to say he's playing poorly or anything. It just, you know, there's a reason that he's not lining up, you know, in, in, and seeing the kind of target load that Benjamin would have seen. Um, I, I think it's just going to require a bit of an adjustment period. I mean, four targets on Sunday is, is a little bit more encouraging than his week one performance, but still just one catch for 15 yards. Probably a guy you're going to see cut in a lot of 12-team uh, leagues this week just because simply uh, the volume is short right now. Maybe it's there later in the year. Maybe it just takes him some time to get up to speed, but it's been a disappointing first two weeks for Devin Funches. How about the Steelers just crushing the Niners? 43-18, the Pittsburgh offense moving the ball effectively through the air and on the ground. D'Angelo Williams just bouncing back in a big way this year. Uh, Le'Veon Bell, of course, coming back for week three. But Williams finished with 20 carries, 77 yards, three TDs on the ground. Antonio Brown is unstoppable right now. Nine for 195 and a score on 11 targets. Darius Hayward Bay is better than both Marcus Wheaton and really anyone else you're going to throw out there as far as depth receivers go. I and mean, once they get Martavis Bryant back, I think things could dry up a bit for DHB. But maybe Al Davis was right about Hayward Bay all along. Maybe the quarterback play and the offenses in Oakland were just so horrendous that his talent was completely just unutilized. Yeah, I mean, definitely a late bloomer, I, th- I think, in this, in this Pittsburgh offense. But yeah, I mean, only five receivers used by Ben Roethlisberger in this game to throw for 369 yards. Another big game for him. Um, and this Steelers offense continues to impress. I don't think, I don't think they were generally considered much of a, a Super Bowl contender by a lot of by a lot of experts. I mean, they're definitely up there in that top tier. But you know, you, you hear New England, you hear Baltimore before the season as, as kind of the favorites, and, and obviously Indianapolis and the AFC. But I mean, is Pittsburgh kind of vaulted up, right? Maybe just a step below New England for you now. I think they're a second tier team in the AFC. I think there's big problems on defense, and really the Niners couldn't exploit that. I mean, we saw Carlos Hyde leave this game for a while. He went through the concussion protocol was cleared of any sort of issue there but just 13 carries for 43 yards four catches for 18 yards this is a team that didn't do much offensively until they were playing significant catch-up until the Steelers were dropping off into like a prevent type scenario it seems I mean Colin Kaepernick finished with good numbers 335 couple TDs 51 rushing yards but that wasn't really at all how this game was going early on when it was close it was 29 to 3 at the end of three 
and then it seemed like the yardage started to get piled up a little bit. Anquan Bolden scored, I mean, 10 targets, 6 for 60 in a TD. Torrey Smith, 6 for 120, had a long of 75. That's a big part of what he can do. I, I still have a lot of concerns about this San Francisco offense, but ultimately, this seems like a tough spot for them. Going on the road, playing the early game in Pittsburgh, coming off of a huge win on Monday night against the Vikings, too, which I was surprised by that. I thought San Francisco would lose at home to Minnesota in week one. So there's there's still kind of a mystery offensively, but I, I don't think Kaepernick's performance is the result of anything more than the way this game kind of unfolded. We're going to find out a lot about this 49ers team in the next couple of weeks now, too. I think a, a pretty impressive win over Minnesota in week one that you know, this was this a team that a lot of people didn't really expect very much from this year. And I think that week one, that week one, somewhat of a blowout, I guess, you know, you only scored 20 points, but holding Minnesota to three points, you know, I think kind of kind of won them back some favor, and now you know a big blowout loss like this. And you look in Week Three, they're at Arizona, and then they they return home to host Green Bay, then the Giants, Ravens, Seahawks, Rams, Falcons, Seahawks. So really, not an easy game uh, in on the horizon here for for San Francisco until you get into Week Eight or Nine when they play Chicago. So there really aren't going to be any breaks for them uh, at this point, and. We're going to find out a lot about them starting next week when they're in Arizona. Yeah, I would agree there. Arizona's defense maybe is vulnerable, too. We saw the Saints go on the road and put up uh, decent numbers against them, especially the running backs catching passes in week one. And the Saints, as we saw this week, maybe aren't as good as we thought. Um, But Arizona's defense, big question mark without Todd Bowles. I'm curious to see what Kaepernick and Hyde and company can do in that matchup. But definitely a tough schedule, too, because they go on the road, as you said, to face the Giants coming up here in week five i think that's even a tough spot although at least that is not an early kickoff i think when west coast teams have to go to the east coast have that one eastern kickoff that can often just make things even more difficult because that's a 10 a.m kickoff Mm -hmm. on the west coast and you know going through the preparations depending on travel and all that i don't it feels like those teams are often at a pretty significant disadvantage not enough to get blown out as badly as the niners did in week one but uh i don't know i i expected more from this game to, to put it mildly but the Steelers did pretty much what we expect them to do offensively with a heavy, heavy dose of Antonio Brown. Bucks twenty six, Saints nineteen. Really? Like that? That happened yesterday, Nick? Uh, apparently, I this New Orleans team. I don't know. I we we talked about before the season that the NFC South is basically theirs for the taking, pretty much up for grabs, and they've done anything but that. I guess through two weeks. Um, Jameis Winston wasn't spectacular in this game, played a you know pretty conservative game plan, 14 of 21, 207 yards and a touchdown for him. Did have a couple pretty impressive throws, one in particular I think it was either early fourth quarter or late third quarter, rolling right, kind of throwing across his body deep uh, to find a receiver near the end zone. Still no Mike Evans for Tampa Bay, so you know maybe we really haven't quite seen what Winston's going to be with that top weapon once he gets back. Um, just I don't this the Saints team is the bigger story to me I think yeah, I'm not I'm not shocked that that Tampa Bay won this game necessarily I think they're not nearly as bad as they showed in week one but I mean 19 points for the Saints offense at home six straight losses now at the Superdome I mean you got major issues defensively for the Saints this whole division I think defensively leaves plenty to be desired maybe Atlanta will have the best defense in this division when it's all said and done we'll see if they're able to gel with uh, Dan Quinn there as their head coach but I mean, Saints offense, Brandon Cooks, 5 for 62 on seven targets. Breeze, 255, a TD and a pick. He was 24 of 38. The weapons just aren't there. Uh, I expected more from Cooks given this particular matchup. I know Jimmy Graham's departure changes the look of the Saints offense, but even before Jimmy Graham emerged to be what he is, 
Breeze, I mean, this is five years ago, I think now, Breeze was effective at just spreading the ball around. Marcus Colston was more dynamic back then. And you just really looked at him and thought, it doesn't even matter who's catching passes. Like, this system is so good. The Saints offense is so good. Sean Payton is such a good offensive mind that it just doesn't matter. I don't know what's changed. If it's the erosion of Breeze's skills or if teams have just figured out Payton's system or if the talent has dropped off or if it's some combination of the three. But if you're looking at the Saints and you're looking at Drew Brees and saying, yeah, he's up there. He's a top five, top six quarterback. You're just wrong. I think he's a very good QB two, the kind of guy you have to mix and match with an Eli or a Rivers or someone like that. I think that's the tier he's probably fallen into for regardless of the reason. That's just where he belongs now value wise. I don't know if people value him that low just yet. I feel like you could actually move him to somebody in your league who still thinks the Saints offense is going to bounce back to previous norms. Yeah, I think Breeze was ranked number one in our value meter going into this week. Yeah, oh yeah, Jeff because 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 one. Mariota shredded that defense. I mean, right. they had the Titans had four TD passes in the first half last week against the Bucks, and you know, give them credit for bouncing back defensively to go into New Orleans and to hold this team to 19 points, and it was I think it's just seven through three quarters. I never would have guessed that. I, I, I thought the Saints were going to put up 30 plus with relative ease. Yeah, I, th- I thought so too. And you, you talked about the erosion of the weapons that Drew Brees has, but I mean, this still is a, a respectable receiving core, right? I mean, you have a, a fairly dynamic back in CJ Spiller to compliment Ingram and then Kyrie Robinson, who had a nice game on Sunday. You still have Colston, you still have Cooks, a guy like Brandon Coleman, who, who looks like a high upside guy. I mean, they're, they have a better, a, a better repertoire of weapons than, than a lot of teams do. So I'm not really sure what the issue is. I mean, you, it's not like you're watching Drew Brees and he looks like Peyton Manning out there. You know, his balls still look still look like they're flying fine. They're not. You know, they're, he's not losing much velocity. I'm, I'm just not exactly sure what it is, and it's 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 got to be frustrating, I think, for Saints fans and for people depending on the Saints and fantasy because there's there's just no reason you should be losing at home to Tampa Bay like this. The killer is if you drafted Brees and you really didn't invest much or at all in a backup quarterback because now you have a guy that you really don't want to play every single week as your primary option you have to go to the waiver wire and find somebody if you're in a deeper league that becomes a bit more difficult i watched a lot of this vikings lions game nick 26 16 minnesota comes away on top and you know kelvin johnson got his targets a lot of those came throughout the second half when lions were playing from behind he had 17 targets 10 catches for 83 yards at a touchdown xavier rhodes did a pretty good job keeping him in check and, and the td catch that johnson had was barely a td catch like I, it was reviewed i was actually surprised that uh, it was upheld because oftentimes review works against kelvin johnson just seems like the the way that things have kind of fallen for him throughout his career but minnesota's defense in this game played the way i thought they'd play on monday night against san francisco they were really strong against the run amir abdullah couldn't get anything going on the ground joy bell couldn't get anything going on the ground this is this is one of those defenses that I think is kind of underrated, probably a top 10 fantasy defense when it's all said and done this year. Matthew Stafford took a beating in this game. I don't know how much of this one you got to see, but he was constantly getting hit even after getting rid of the ball. 53 attempts, probably got hit like 25 times. I mean, he was non-throwing elbows, bleeding all over the place. He was limping down the field a couple times, got crushed on a hit out of bounds, just got shoved and almost flew into the benches. His teammates didn't even really do anything about it. They kind of like passively swarmed the guy, but didn't really like shove him or do anything. It's just like, what's going on in Detroit? I mean, they're 0-2. They had to play two on the road to start the year. Obviously, that's that's a difficult way to have to open the schedule, but I think people expected more from this team. I think they thought 
quality like eight and eight team was what they are i think they look more like a five or six win team based on what we've seen here in these first two weeks yeah i know i expected a little bit more from them they looked so good in the first half against san diego in week one and then got their lead and basically just shut it down and couldn't move the ball the rest of the game until until late in the fourth quarter when san diego was kind of sitting back in that prevent they're are they better than minnesota no no, no, this this wasn't this wasn't Minnesota being at home and winning because of that. Minnesota is just a more talented team right now. Right. I mean, they were feeding Adrian Peterson at the high level. You expect them to twenty nine carries after what ten, I think, on Monday, hundred and thirty four yards. Caught a couple passes for fifty eight yards. Lost a fumble. Actually, coughed it up twice. They got it back once, but lost a fumble in this one. Kind of atypical of AP um, Lions offense behind Kelvin Johnson. I mean, Eric Ebron kind of emerging as the third option there. He was targeted 10 times, actually hauled in a TD catch. So, so maybe the Lions offense will still be good, but Minnesota's defense is a force to be reckoned with. Teddy Bridgewater only had to throw it 18 times. So I think he's still maybe the question mark there. I was starting to believe based on what we saw at the end of last season, looked really comfortable throughout the preseason as well. You know, good touch, good accuracy on his throws so I think he's ultimately going to be the x factor in determining whether Minnesota's a team that can get just merely get into the playoffs or if they can actually win a game once they get there well this is exactly the type of game that Bridgewater has to play if Minnesota is going to be successful you know feed Adrian Peterson get him almost 30 carries and yeah I think that's what people were clamoring for after week one and they did exactly that and Detroit had to know it was coming and they you know they simply couldn't stop it and it's Adrian Peterson but yeah I mean Bridgewater just has to be efficient like you said his accuracy is his strength you know he's not a guy who's going to you know, be making Aaron Rodgers like plays down the field, fitting the ball into tight windows. It's you know limiting mistakes, no interceptions here, just one sack, uh, and, and only a two two yard loss there. So you know, just knowing when to get rid of the ball, things like that, and that's and that's where his strengths are. So I think if, if Minnesota is going to to kind of hang around as a fringe wild card team, these, these are exactly the games they have to do. Don't put it in Teddy Bridgewater's hands, put it in Adrian Peterson's hands, and you know, and, and allow Bridgewater to kind of make plays around that. So the Vikings are going to host the Chargers in week three. And you look at the way the targets were distributed. Kyle Rudolph got the bulk of them. Five catches for 30 yards and a score. Otherwise, not much in this passing game at all. I mean, Wallace and Charles Johnson combined for six catches for 48 yards on six targets. Is there anyone in this passing game that you want to invest in right now? Someone you want to buy low in? Or do you look at it and just say week to week they're going to be too inconsistent and their defense is good enough where they probably don't end up in too many shootouts? I think they're going to be too inconsistent, especially when you have a quarterback who's attempting fewer than 20 passes. I mean, no matter what in that situation, it's going to make it difficult to find any production um, you know, as a receiver, Adrian Peterson was their leading receiver by 20 yards in this game, and he only had two catches, um, you know, one of those going for 49 yards, and that's, and that's where you know, the bulk of his yardage came from. I don't like Mike Wallace that much. Um, Charles Johnson, I think, has been a huge disappointment. It's only been two weeks, but he's a guy I think people um, you know, thought would be a big steal. Cordero Patterson is just non-existent at this point, a guy who looked very promising a couple of years ago and has just been kind of on a, a slow decline since then. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stay away from this Minnesota receiving core. And if there's anybody you want to target, I guess it's probably Kyle Rudolph. Maybe this division as a whole is worse than people expected to. And the Bears, health's been a factor for them. They got crushed by the Cardinals, 48-23 at home. Bears have lost two at home, of course, losing to Green Bay in Week 1. Not that losing to the Packers at home is an indictment of a team and, and indica- indicative of a team that can't be good over the course of the year. But to get blown out by Arizona, not a really a good look. I mean, Jimmy Clausen had to take over for Cutler, who got hurt uh, trying to make a tackle on an interception. Clawson finished 14 of 23 for 121 and a pick. QBR 3.2. Cutler was perfect, too, before the pick, which is kind of a, a sad 
sad way to see this one play out. Jeremy Langford got into the end zone, basically vultured a touchdown from Matt Forte. Forte looked good again, 61 yards, 15 carries, caught four passes for 44 yards. So he looks like he was a little bit undervalued in many drafts. Martellus Bennett had a disappointing day. I mean, just four catches for 48 yards on six targets. It was Joshua Bellamy scoring his first career touchdown through the air for the Bears. So really, this offense, it's it's become disastrous. We don't know if Cutler's going to be available for week three. On the other side, Carson Palmer, 17 for 24, 185, four TDs, just one pick. Larry Fitzgerald seems to be back. How about eight catches for 112, three TDs, nine targets? Clearly the most valuable of the Arizona receivers at the present time. Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of Fitzgerald's best games in years. And, you know, a guy who just doesn't really seem to be to be losing it a whole lot. Um, you know, obviously he's not quite the athlete or you know, he was never really much of a speed guy, I guess. But, you know, he's, I mean, he's as productive as ever. He, he's getting open like he like he always has. And three touchdowns in this game, like he said, eight receptions, 112 yards. Um, that's eight catches on nine targets. So, I mean, he's, him, and, him and Carson Palmer are connecting and they're connecting at a high rate. John Brown, five catches for 45 yards in this one. Jerron Brown uh, got into the end zone. I'm not, not really sure what his story is. Um, but the tight end position, not a lot of production uh, for Arizona. Jermaine Grafson, just one catch for five yards there. I, I think Fitzgerald is, like you said, the clear number one guy to own in that offense. Michael Floyd was active for this game, by the way, and didn't really do anything. I mean, mm-hmm. he, I don't think he was even targeted, or if he was, he didn't catch any passes, so he's not showing up in the box score so i as it is right now it's fitz one john brown two and and floyd a distant third probably not even startable maybe even in the devin funchess getting cut in 12 team mixed leagues group running game with chris johnson 20 carries for 72 yards david johnson had five for 42 and a score not sure why the distribution was 20 to 5 it's just a lopsided game i don't know if bruce arians doesn't like david johnson but he also ran back a kickoff 108 yards for a score the opening you, kickoff too. yeah you have to think that the Cardinals were going to start making him a bigger part of their game plan, especially as they play at least, I think, one more game potentially without Andre Ellington. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think he's kind of the a little bit of a wild card for this for this offense as far as what he can do from a big playability. Um, we're not really sure when we're going to see Andre Ellington back on the field. I don't, I don't know if you've heard anything um, you know, coming from Arizona since the game, but it sounds like he's basically going to be questionable going into week three. So definitely a name to keep an eye on there. And, you know, if he's held out again, then then Chris Johnson and David Johnson kind of seem to be the pair to, 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 to load up on in Arizona. Yeah, I, I'm with you there. Let's move on to the Patriots and Bills. Uh, Patriots kind of let this one get close after opening up a big lead through three. Uh, Tyrod Taylor finished 23 of 30, three touchdowns, three picks. You expect that, I think, from an inexperienced player, one that has a wide range of outcomes, but I think one that we continue to look at and say, this guy gives the Bills the best possible chance of winning games, especially like this one, but also winning games, you know, come January. Yeah, yeah. And it, I mean, he's so much more exciting to watch than EJ Manuel, too, and, and certainly uh, more exciting than, than Matt Castle. 23 of 30 for 242 yards. Did have those three picks, but also had three touchdowns. So, I mean, it's seven incompletions and three of them went for picks, which is not ideal. Did take eight sacks in this one, too, um, which is a ton for somebody as mobile as he is. Uh, added 43 rushing yards and a touchdown. So, a, a decent fantasy week, especially if your league doesn't penalize too heavily for interceptions. Um, but, yeah, I mean, did, did you get to catch much of this game, or were you focused more on Minnesota-Detroit? This was the other game I watched a lot during the early block. I just kept mm-hmm. flipping back and forth. There were good enough matchups where I didn't feel 
horrible about not having red zone available this week hoping to change that finally for week yeah. three but uh you know gronk had a pretty gronk looking line at the end and, and they did the exact same thing formation wise they did uh in week one against the steelers they lined him up out wide near the goal line put chandler in the slot he ran a different route this time instead of running the crossing route that he used and the fade route that he used in week one this time he went up and then across the back of the end zone Bill's DBs got confused. He was wide open for an easy score. It just, isn't it crazy how that just keeps happening week after week after week? The yeah. Gronkowski just gets lost in the red zone? Well, and the thing about it, too, is if you if you expect the team to do exactly what they did the last time they lined up in a certain formation, you're kind of underestimating the Patriots just a little bit. Most teams were going to give you a similar look and then just run different routes off of it. Uh, so credit to Josh McDaniels, I, I guess, if, if that's where we want to give credit in this one. But I mean, Gronk's one of those guys... How, how do you defend him? He's so big and so fast that you want to try to jam him at the line. He's probably going to get off the Good line and get that. open. And once he does that, if, if it's an open field especially, he's going to go the distance too. So it's, it's, it's almost impossible to defend this guy. Uh, Julian Edelman, 11 catches for 97 yards, two TDs, about 19 targets. I mean, Tom Brady, of course, with a massive game, 38 of 59 for 466 and three touchdowns. And I, I'm watching this and I'm thinking, you know, that two quarterback league, the Stopa Law Firm league, where I was offered Lamar uh, Tom Brady straight up for Lamar Miller a few weeks ago, going into the season, probably a mistake not taking that. I would think so. Yeah. Who? Well, who do you have for quarterbacks in that league? At the time, uh, Rivers has one of the quarterback spots, and then I had I think, man, that's, that's, this, is, this is the problem. I had two other options: Griffin before it was clear he wasn't going to be the starter, mm-hmm. and uh, Brian Hoyer. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, well, the problem was I didn't have running back depth either. Now, the reality is getting quarterback like Brady is much harder than finding a guy that you can plug in at running back. And at the time, I think the other concern was, well, I was buying into Lamar Miller. I thought Mm -hmm. 15-plus carries every week should average 4.5-plus yards per carry. Should be great. And my first instinct on Lamar Miller was that I didn't like him. And then once I bought him in that auction, I talked myself into it. That was stupid. Should have just took that offer when I had the chance. Obviously, now that offer is long gone. Brady's being looked at probably as a top three, top four type quarterback. I mean, if we're drafting today, he goes ahead of Breeze, ahead of Manning. Believe it or not, even after the suspension was overturned, those guys were consistently going ahead of Brady in many drafts. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's just a product of his age, too. You know, I mean, he had a productive year last year, but you look and it, it, people just don't, you know, quarterbacks just don't put up these kind of numbers um, you know, when, when they're up there at age 38, as Tom Brady is. But not really showing any signs of slowing down. He certainly looks as young as ever. I was thinking that watching the game yesterday. He doesn't look like a 38-year-old. Like Peyton Manning looks like he's 38, 39. He, yeah, Tom he, Brady he does. still could pass as, like a, as a 30-year-old. Um, but yeah, I mean, this, this New England offense is, barring any injuries, they're, they're going to be close to unstoppable, I think. I mean, putting 40 points on a very good Bills defense on the road made it look easy. Yeah, you look at the Patriots offense, too. You look at some of the pass catchers behind guys like Gronk and Edelman, and Deion Lewis was heavily targeted. I mean, six catches for 98 yards, ran it seven times for 40 yards, also got to the end zone, continues to get snaps and, and touches, even though he's fumbled twice now in two weeks. So Bill Belichick must really like what he brings to the table, but at the same time, I don't have him in season long. I wouldn't go overboard trading for him right now. I mean, look at LeGarrette Blunt's workload in this one. In a game where they had a big lead, LeGarrette Blunt carried the ball two times for four yards. So it's going to be just the whims of the coaching staff from week to week. I like Lewis in full point PPR. Outside of that, I think you're going to have some weeks where you come away sorely disappointed. Certainly a guy who's proven that he's going to be a part of the offense, but do not forget 
this is an offense that week to week can be wildly unpredictable. Right. Would it shock you at all if they come out in week three against Jacksonville and Blunt carries the ball 25 times and Deion Lewis is on the field for like 10% of the snaps? Yeah. I mean, like, if you they, never know. You really don't know at all. And it, it's, it's such a risk to load up on any of those guys and really put too many eggs in the pads basket. Oh, for sure. I mean, if, if they get to the point where they're, they have a three TD lead in the second half, which seems very reasonable, I, I could just see this being a case wow. where they, they just run Blunt and Brandon Bolden a bunch of times. Like, that's just the way it would go. I mean, it could also be just the function of, they value Deion Lewis in a way that like, they valued Shane Vereen and they don't want him to get hurt because he gives them so much more versatility than their other just backs a on offense. For them, really. yeah. You have an offense that's this good and you have a back like LeGarrette Blunt who could certainly be an every down back for most teams. It, you, know, you really don't have any reason to, to one, expose Deion Lewis to injury and two, you know, show too much to opponents for a team like New England that's always thinking one step ahead and you know, thinking postseason. Yeah, and, and on the other side of this matchup, too, it was kind of an ugly day for the Bills offense until they started to play catch-up. Um, early on, Carlos Williams took a TD away from LaShawn McCoy, finished six carries for 21 yards. McCoy actually looked okay, 15 carries for 89 yards. I think that he's coming off a hamstring injury and showing the same burst that he had last year or even prior to last year i think is really encouraging for the bills uh, robert woods hauled in a td catch sammy Watkins six for 60 and a score eight targets was a team high so nice to see him get back out there and, and producing after a really disappointing week one makes me feel a little better about the places where i took the chance on sammy Watkins. oftentimes i looked at him as like a third receiver or a flex and full ppr and i think he will be better than than average i mean most weeks he'll be like a top 20 receiver in those formats most weeks i think that week one game will go down as a pretty big aberration when it's all said and done Uh, i'm kind of curious to know when these teams match up again later this year if belichick will scheme in a way to take away watkins because it seems like he's still their most explosive playmaker uh in that group of pass catchers yeah, I think there's no doubt about that. Robert Woods also scored in this one. He he had three catches for 60 yards. Like you said, Watkins, six for 60. Percy Harvin had the lone uh, receiving touchdown in week one. He was a little bit more quiet here, four for 47. And that's kind of what you're going to get with Harvin. You know, he's, he's the guy that will hit. You can go deep on that, you know, on that long ball from 40-plus yards every now and then. But you know, if he's not running in a straight line, he's not nearly as valuable as a guy like Watkins. So, yeah, he's certainly the, the guy to own in this offense. Yeah, he's a, a tournament play, I think, as far as Percy Harvin goes. And even then, I, I don't think I like him enough to really go down that road because many weeks the Bills aren't going to have the extreme volume that you want when you're taking a chance on those tournament-style plays. Bengals 24, Chargers 19. This is the game that I probably would have watched the most if it were available to me in market. Andy Dalton, 16 of 26 for 214, three TDs. Philip Rivers, 21 of 27 for 241, a couple of scores and a pick. Uh, you look at the way the running backs on both sides were used. We'll start with the Chargers. Melvin Gordon had 16 carries for 88 yards, including a long of 27. Denny Woodhead, 7 for 36, a long of 9. But Woodhead caught six passes for 68 yards on six targets, which I think will continue to preserve his value on a week-to-week basis, especially in points where you, or in leagues where you get points for each reception. Yeah, I mean, he might not come up with six receptions each game, but it's going to be a situation where Melvin Gordon is oftentimes off the field on a, on a third and medium, a third and long, and uh, you know and that's where Woodhead kind of makes his money there. So you look at the targets, Melvin Gordon's only targeted once out of the backfield, like you said, Woodhead, six catches on those six targets. So I mean, if it's if it's third down and and the Chargers are in a passing situation, I think Woodhead is almost one of Philip Rivers' top options. Yeah, I think I think you're right about that. You can just check it down so easily and uh, avoid making a mistake. And I think when you Keenan Allen got shut down in this game, just two catches for 16 yards. I only threw it his way four times. 
I think when you really are missing Antonio Gates, especially, you're going to dump it down to Woodhead even more than you would otherwise. So I, I could see his value maybe taking a slight hit once Gates returns because that's a handful of targets that have to come from somewhere. Maybe maybe most of them come from Ladarius Green, but I could see Woodhead catching like three or four balls most weeks instead of five-plus once Gates is back in the fold. I wanted to ask you about this Cincinnati running back situation. I think a lot of people are very disappointed to see the the workload distribution between Jeremy Hill and Gio Bernard. Bernard finished with 123 yards, no touchdowns, 20 carries, the second most of his career, um, and, and second only to week two of the 2014 season. So it's been a while since we've seen Gio Bernard kind of being the focal point of the Cincinnati offense like this, over six yards a carry. Jeremy Hill didn't have quite as much luck. Still a decent day, though, 10 for 39, just just didn't have the same volume as Bernard. Yeah, if you think about it, I think the two fumbles he lost probably shaped the workload quite a bit. I, I hope it's not necessarily the sign of something permanent, um, but when you look at the Bengals' offense, if they're protecting leads. They've got two quality options, and, and going into last season, I mean, Jeremy or Gio Bernard was being consistently drafted ahead of Jeremy Hill. Like that was, uh, and there was a pretty good gap between those two players. So it really shouldn't be shocking in some instances to see Bernard get the bulk of the carries, depending on the, the situation. And again, the two fumbles for Hill, I think, had a lot to do with this. Uh, Bernard's always going to be involved as a pass catcher, only three catches for 16 yards. In this one, Hill caught one ball for two yards by comparison. So I think most weeks you're looking at Gio Bernard as more of a flex option. I think Hill still has a chance to be an RB1 this year. Most weeks likely to fall in as an RB2. I also think he's better suited for goal line work, which even if somehow Bernard has a larger share of the carries, more often than not, Hill's the likely guy that's going to score in close. So I wouldn't panic too much if I'm a Jeremy Hill owner right now. This is uh, something within the range of possibilities going in. I didn't expect to see a 20-10 split favoring Bernard, but I think that's just the unusual circumstances of those two fumbles. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. I think uh, I think we'll probably expect it to almost be reversed most weeks You know, with the 20-10 split in favor of Hill. Fantasy football just got a whole lot more interesting. In week three, DraftKings will be hosting another Millionaire Maker event with $1.2 million going to the first place winner. Go to DraftKings.com now. Enter the promo code ROTOWIRE to play for free with your first deposit on DraftKings. That's promo code ROTOWIRE, R-O-T-O-W-I-R-E, for free entry now with your first deposit at DraftKings.com. This isn't fantasy as usual. This is DraftKings. Welcome to the big time. All right, so we talked about the Browns being a huge disappointment back in week one. Of course, the Titans being one of the biggest surprises. Lo and behold, the Browns beat the Titans 28-14 on Sunday. Titans pass catchers were an absolute mess, thanks in part to the emergence of Anthony Fasano. Five catches, 84 yards, and a touchdown on seven targets. Also, the result of Delaney Walker's absence. I don't think it's necessarily a case that Fasano is going to be a regular contributor here, but look at the receivers two for 17 on four targets from Kendall Wright. The running game sputtered quite a bit, although Dexter McCluster had 10 carries for 98 yards. Bishop Sankey really came crashing back to earth 12 carries, 42 yards, and a long of eight against the Cleveland defense that was shredded by Chris Ivory in week one. On the side of the Cleveland offense, though, Johnny Manziel, 8 of 15, 172 yards, two TDs, hit a long TD strike to Travis Benjamin early in this one, found him again for another one later on. Uh, But the pass catchers otherwise, I mean, Andrew Hawkins, 3 for 43, Gary Barnage and Terry Taylor Gabriel, just a mix of players that you don't get excited about ever, really. I mean, the, the question I have here is, can you look at Johnny Manziel with these weapons and say, this guy can be a top 15 quarterback and a viable QB2, or is he really best left 
to leagues where you have to start two quarterbacks because the volume probably won't be there so long as he remains their starter. I think he should be relegated to two quarterback leagues. I mean, 15 attempts and eight completions is going to win you games over the Titans at home, I guess, earlier in the season. But that's not going to do it for you most weeks. Um, I mean, the... I don't know if you, if you were able to catch this game. I'm sure you saw the highlight. You know, one of, one of the touchdowns was a, a pretty vintage Johnny Football. You know, kind of get out of the pocket, scramble left, set feet, and and just launch one downfield. And it's just they're just not sustainable type of plays. You know, I mean, if you if you had them in a in a lineup this weekend, you probably did all right. You know, two touchdowns, no picks, um, you know, 172 yards on eight completions. I think you got to be happy about that. But I just don't know if that's sustainable at all. And then the other thing is. And from a fantasy perspective, what, what, what was valuable about Manziel is what he brings you on the ground. And in this game, he only had three attempts for one yard. So they're really not trying to use him you know, as a rusher. So if he's, if he's really not going to give you probably more than 200 yards through the air and, and they're not using him as a rusher, I just don't know if the value's there on a week-to-week basis. I wonder if the lack of running from Manziel, though, was either like direct uh, from the coaching staff, if they just said, hey, look, stay, stay mostly in check here, don't get exposed, don't get hit because we're we're thin at quarterback with Josh McCollins still unavailable with a concussion whereas if McCollins available as the backup maybe they just let him kind of play his style more because if he gets knocked out of a game then they have an option that they feel comfortable with well there's that and Menzel still had the the nagging elbow injury too and that's probably something that affects him a little bit more as a thrower but still you don't want to have that kind of you know excessive contact especially like you said with them thin at the position if McCown is healthy and cleared from the concussion protocol heading into week three does he get this job back I don't think so. I think Manziel has to like basically cost the Browns a game before he loses the job again. But at the same time, I can't reliably predict Mike Pettin. Uh, looking at the carry distribution, Isaiah Crowell had 15 for 72 yards and a score. Duke Johnson had 12 carries for 43 yards, clinging a long of 20. A little surprising to see Manziel not throwing to the running backs, especially Duke Johnson. You'd think that if you have a quarterback that you really don't want to throw down the field with too much, that you'd get Johnson out in the flat, get the ball in his hands, and let him just make plays out in space. Yeah, you would think that. And and I just don't think Cleveland was in pass mode for most of this game. You know, Travis Benjamin returned a punt early, uh, and they built a lead that they were able to sustain throughout the game. And I think they didn't really want – they wanted to limit Johnny Manziel's mistakes, I guess. And you know, I mean, they, they pounded to Isaiah Kroll. They pounded to Duke Johnson on the ground. 30 carries between the two of those guys. Um you know, and I think they were just kind of content to sit on that lead. I mean, they're up twenty-one to zero going into half, and just really didn't see much of a reason to, to jeopardize that at all. And it ended up it ended up technically being the right move, I guess. It down twenty-one nothing at halftime. Titans, of course, airing it out a lot in the second half. Mariota finishing twenty-one of thirty-seven for two hundred and fifty-seven yards and a pair of touchdowns. A rushing performance was light, three carries for nineteen yards. But I still think you're going to see more of that in some weeks especially in closer shootout settings uh, but Mariota lost a couple fumbles in this one too so pretty costly turnovers as this one unfolded needless to say I didn't expect the Browns to win by 14 but the the Travis Benjamin performance in this one really impressive you think about what he was able to do I mean the, the punt return for a TD the two receiving touchdowns is there anything there? Like, do you go after him in your season long leagues? Do you pick him up with the hope of plugging him in as a wide receiver three or a flex? Like, what what type of league do you have to be in to actually trust him right now? And if you're in like a 16 team league, I think there's a spot for him. And this, to be fair, he did have a receiving touchdown last week. I mean, he has two uh, two receptions of 50 plus yards. And I mean, he's he's our go to deep ball guy. And there's probably going to be weeks where he's going to have one catch for 25 yards, and that'll be it. But 
there's something to be said for targeting someone who is the number one target in, a, in an offense. Even if it is a bad offense like Cleveland, I mean, if you're looking at, um, for example, like would you rather have the third or fourth receiver in, in, the, in the Green Bay offense, like you know, James Jones or Travis Benjamin? It's close because I think with Jones, you're looking at a much lower volume on a week-to-week basis than you would typically want in someone you start every exactly. week. But you're you're getting red zone targets, and with Benjamin, it's like he doesn't have to be in the red zone yeah. to well, score the Browns because are he's rarely so elusive. In the red zone in the first place, right? But yeah, but he's so fast, he can get behind some DBs and, right. and make a big play here and there. So it, it, it it's like for floor for purposes of a higher floor, I think Jones just because he's in a better offense. But I, I don't think they're that far apart in value, even though most people would probably say they strongly prefer jones at this point just kind of the bias against i think receivers on uh, bad teams atlanta 24 new york 20 the giants collapse again odell beckham is at least back seven for 146 and a score including a 67 yard td catch on 12 targets the running game is is brutal i mean it's it's a mix of rashad jennings and shane vereen and then andre williams williams the best on a per carry basis by a good margin thanks to a 35 yard scamper in this one so I don't know what they're going to do at running back week to week. I think with Shane Vereen being heavily involved as a pass catcher, that protects his value, of course. Eight catches for 76 yards on eight targets. I think Jennings is at a point now where you really can't start him. I mean, Vereen has made him almost irrelevant, and Williams being a better runner possibly hurts him there too. So Rashad Jennings is in a terrible spot right now. Larry Donnell scores the other uh, rushing or the receiving TD here for the Giants. Eli Manning finished 27 of 40 for 292 and the two TDs, but a lost fumble late, very costly in this one, and the Falcons made him pay. Tevin Coleman suffered a rib injury in this one, Nick. Nine carries for 32 yards and a score. We saw more Devontae Freeman, 12 carries for 25 yards. He also had a rushing score, and he also caught four balls on uh, on eight targets for 34 yards. So it just looks like the Atlanta offense is still not sure at the running back position. The Coleman injury makes it even more cloudy. But the big story for me in this one, or the, the subplot at least, that is worth mentioning Leonard Hankerson, 11 targets, 6 catches, 77 yards, and a TD. Roddy White, nowhere to be found. <sighs> Excuse me. Yeah, um, yeah. I think nobody was really expecting this type of game from, uh, from Hankerson this early in the season. Um, yeah, I don't know if Roddy White was dealing with a, with a minor injury or something like that, but he was just completely non-existent in this game, and, and Hankerson obviously had a big impact. Another huge game from Julio Jones, 13 receptions, 135 yards. Did not get in the end zone in this one, but... I mean, is he the best receiver in the league right now? And certainly the best receiver from a fantasy perspective? I think he, I think right now you can go either way between Antonio Brown and Julio Jones if it's a full point PPR, especially because the volume for Brown should be right there every week with Jones. But in a non-PPR setting, I think you go Jones. I think he's more likely to get you 14-plus TDs maybe over the course of the year, uh, whereas Brown, I think, kind of caps into that 10-12 to 12 range. And Julio, man, he's just so dangerous after the catch, too playing half the games indoors it's just really close because the Steelers are going to be in a lot of shootouts so Brown's an extreme volume guy that's going to have to be relied on a lot and the Falcons playing half the games indoors being in a division where there's gonna be plenty of shootouts I think it's a legitimate 50-50 toss-up at this point not surprisingly you saw those guys going first overall in NFFC drafts late in draft season so I mean, having to choose would be hard. I think the optimal spot in a full-point PPR league is to draft second and just get whichever one is left over. Yeah, exactly. Then you don't have the guilt of, of making the decision yourself there. Are you worried about this Giants team? I mean, not looking at it from a fantasy perspective, just you know, as a, as a real football perspective, going 0-2 now after two pretty tough losses. They, they had a 10-point lead going into the fourth quarter, and this one allowed Atlanta to score twice down the stretch. I mean, they get Washington next week, so you, you like the odds in that matchup, but... 
it just looks like the same old Giants teams that we've seen, you know, for the past three, four years. Definitely not bad enough, you know, to, to, to be in the bottom tier of the NFC, but just not quite there to beat, you know, pretty good teams like like Dallas and Atlanta. Well, they're home against Washington here in week three. I think that's probably a win. So they get to one and two there. Redskins have been a little better than I expected, but I don't see the Giants losing at home to them after losing this way, this way at home to Atlanta in week two. On the road in Buffalo in week four, I don't think the Giants go into Buffalo and win. I just I don't see them being consistent enough to do that. I think the Bills' defense can find a way to limit the damage of, of the non-Odell weapons there, and, and frankly, that's just not going to be good enough. I think that's where the Giants really like kind of lack something for me is they don't they don't have a running back you feel great about they don't have a number two receiver that i like i mean i don't like larry Donnell as more than just like a filler at tight end they need one more playmaker to pair with odell beckham at this point right and i don't know if ruben randall is that guy and victor cruz will be back at some point and but you gotta wonder i mean coming off of a major knee injury um and obviously the subsequent calf injury that he's been dealing with for the last couple of weeks if he's even going to be the impact guy that he'd been in the past and i think he was kind of on the decline the last few years anyway so yeah they're definitely they're definitely maybe a weapon or two away from from returning to being a very good team but i think the running back situation is the most concerning i think when they were a great team that was you know Cruz and Knicks in in combination I think made them really dangerous and I think that's just where if they find someone on the ground if Andre Williams turns out to be their lead back and he can get four and a half plus yards per carry and they get that balance offensively that really goes a long way towards making this team dangerous but unless that happens I have my doubts about them now as a playoff team Washington 24 St. Louis 10 the RG3 bowl if you will Matt Jones had a breakout in this one 19 carries for 123 yards and a couple of touchdowns Alfred Morris ran it 18 times for 59 yards so the Redskins protecting a lead very very heavy with the ground attack Jordan Reed led the way among the pass catchers good good sign for him too coming off of the uh, the injury the minor injury in the opener uh, of course no Deshaun Jackson so more targets for Pierre Garçon as well the Rams really need Brian Quick back they just don't have dynamic playmakers at receiver without him Jared Cook kind of getting a lot of extra targets again I'm still kind of wondering how do they pick apart the Seahawks defense in week one I and mean, we saw the the Green Bay Seattle game last night it wasn't as though the Packers were throwing at will against Seattle it seemed a lot easier of course than usual without Cam Chancellor there uh, this was a pretty big step back for the St. Louis offense yeah it it I think this is one that probably cost a lot of people their survivor pools right along with the Jacksonville game and and the New Orleans game as well but yeah just a just a an interesting like a hangover week after a huge win in Seattle I think this is a team that people started to get on board with you know Nick Foles is kind of a kind of a change of scenery for him and you know getting Sam Bradford out of that offense finally having a healthy quarterback and I mean, th- this is the egg of all eggs they could have laid against a pretty bad Washington team here just could not move the ball whatsoever um, you know, not a great day for Nick Foles, just 17 of 32 for 150 yards, took care of the ball, but only had one touchdown. Tavon Austin, a guy we talked about after a big week one, just one catch for him. Was was St. Louis's leading rusher, though, on only four carries. Um, so kind of a guy that they like to give it to out of that jet sweep formation and, and even out of the backfield at times. Um, I know you wanted to talk about Trey Mason, uh, a guy who was kind of expected to take over that number one running back role after, after sitting out week one. He had just seven carries for 26 yards, and, and Benny Cunningham just one carry and, and didn't gain any yards. Yeah, four catches, though, for Cunningham. I, I kind of wish they'd just give Cunningham the job until Todd Gurley was back because I think Cunningham's a more dynamic player than Mason. All three running backs they have available once they get Gurley back, and they are good enough to contribute. But I worry about 
especially the second two guys kind of just picking away value from each other even if the st louis has a very uh, ground heavy offense jags 23 dolphins 20 what else is there to say i mean Allen robinson goes off those six catches 155 yards and two touchdowns blake bortles looking more like preseason blake bortles in week one blake bortles yeah i mean this was this was definitely the shock of the week for me uh this this lost me the my spot in the rotowire survival pool it also uh, in my pick'em pool, uh, this is my my 16 points confidence. So it was it was tough because I like, you went 16 points on the Dolphins. Yeah, I mean, as a, as like a as a principal, I usually just pick against the Jags because you know it gives you that like the Jags won today, which is great. But had they lost, I was been like, oh well, you know, I got my 16 right. picks. So yeah, you, kinda, you hedge, you hedge against right, your you own hedge. happiness. Exactly, hedging my own happiness. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is. It's a big win for Jacksonville, tied for first in the AFC South. Now, if the season ended today, they would sneak in as a wild card with the with the tiebreakers. <laughs> I checked yeah, um, officially; they get in. Yeah, they actually would. So, yeah, I mean, a long road ahead, but very encouraging win. Like you said, Allen Robinson was the big story in this one. A couple of deep balls, uh, a couple of very impressive catches. Really, almost every catch he had in this game was was a difficult a difficult one. Um, and that's kind of what he was known for coming out of Penn State. Was just a, a physical guy who was, was very very good at kind of screening off defenders on, on a comeback type of route, getting his hands out ahead and, and making the catch there rather than uh, rather than letting the ball come to him. So I wasn't. I did watch this game. I wasn't super impressed with Blake Bortles. He had some accuracy issues. One thing I, he was just really. I don't know what the right word is emotional i guess the jags had some drops in this one and he was demonstrative with his with his disappointment which is which is kind of funny because you don't see that um a ton from from a lot of quarterbacks so it, it was interesting to watch he was certainly in the game uh tj yeldon better than week one 25 carries 70 yards good to see the distribution there i, I think this is what ideally what jacksonville wants on offense is bortles throwing the ball you know in the low 30s in terms of attempts and then you know getting getting yelled in 20 to 25 carries so yeah i was glad to see the balance there just one carry for denard robinson so you know if you're still harboring him in deeper leagues might be time to cut bait because yeldon you know looks like the guy they're willing to go with there um but yeah i mean then obviously if you look at this from miami standpoint just kind of a disaster for lamar miller just 10 carries on 14 yards did leave this game with a sprained ankle um it doesn't sound like they're they're too worried about that yeah jordan cameron got hurt in this one too a groin injury for him we'll see if he's forced to miss any time here heading into week three but lamar miller now below kendrick lamar on my lamar cheat sheet which is a really disappointing development oh wow Wait, what, what does lamar odom check in lamar odom's at the top as he should be. Yeah, he's 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 going to be hard to unseat. Like, didn't, didn't the Dolphins used to have another Lamar running back, like Lamar Smith? Lamar Smith, something? I think, so was they, a Dolphin. They have a history of of bringing in Lamars. They do, uh, and, and I think with Lamar Miller, I, I'm I'm just baffled that he hasn't been better than this because I didn't want him on my teams, and yet I bought him on an important one, and I'm still bitter about this Brady thing. Like, it's going to take me a long time to get over not making that trade. When I had the chance, two 100-yard games in the Dolphins receiving core: Rashard Matthews and Jarvis Landry, six for 115 on seven targets for Matthews, eight for 110 on 10 targets for Landry. Jag uh, secondary is a bit of a work in progress. Yeah, I think the Jag secondary and the Oakland secondary are two that you're going to consistently think about rolling receivers and, and quarterbacks against on DraftKings because there could be some huge payoffs there. Raiders 37-33 winners over Baltimore. I think the entire series, the wire, is going to be reshot in Oakland as a result of this humiliating loss for the city of Baltimore. The Ravens really 
could miss Terrell Suggs. His injury came pretty late in that opener against the Broncos, so we didn't get a chance to see what the Broncos' offense could do against the Ravens' defense without him. Derek Carr, 30 for 46, 7.6 yards per attempt, three TDs, one pick, just one sack. But Joe Flacco, with no real receiving core, 32, 45, 384, two touchdowns and a pick. That's what elite quarterbacks do. That's what elite quarterbacks do. They shred the Raiders. Steve Smith Sr., 10 catches, 150 yards on 16 targets. We saw a lot from both Kamar Aiken and Crockett Gilmore. Crockett Gilmore scoring twice. Friend of the podcast. Looks like he uh, will draw some waiver wire consideration this week. Is it warranted or is it just a function of a matchup against Oakland? I think if you're in a league where you're required to have someone named Crockett, he's obviously the number one target to look at this season. But um, I mean, he's kind of, I know a guy that I was really excited about was Max Williams, the, the rookie coming out of Minnesota. And I thought he was going to kind of try to take this tight end job and run with it. But it's, I mean, it's been Crockett Gilmore and five catches for 88 yards, a couple touchdowns today. Um, I think he's going to be the number one guy in the red zone. And as much as I love Steve Smith and, you know, as great of an athlete as he is, he's, he's just a tough guy to target when you get inside the 20 and 10 yard line. So, I mean, he's worth, Crockett Gilmore is at least worth a look because I think this t- the tight end pool this season seems to be weighted at the top. And then, you know, once you get past, you know, the sixth, seventh, eighth tight ends, then you start getting into this pool where it, you know, it, would you rather have Julius Thomas in that Jags offense or Crockett Gilmore in this Baltimore offense? I think I lean toward Gilmore. Yeah, like nine to 24 week to week could be pretty tight among tight ends. Right. It's, it wouldn't be that surprising. Uh, for Derek Carr, for the 351 yards, split those up uh, over Amari um, Cooper was 7 for 109 on a TD, including a 68-yarder. Uh, Michael Crabtree had 9 catches for 111 yards and a score on 16 targets. Andre Holmes, 3 for 50 on 4. Latavius Murray ran it pretty well. 15 carries, 65 yards, and a touchdown. Actually surprised he didn't get to run more when the Raiders were protecting a lead there, but nobody else really getting carries. Taiwan Jones, just 2 carries for 9 yards. So it looks like Latavius Murray's value is beginning to stay stabilize yeah yeah I was a little disappointed looking at the Baltimore side and Justin Forsett I think he he's kind of fallen into that Lamar Miller category for me he's a a guy who I really really didn't want on my team and the way the draft worked out that the league that I have him in it was you know I think I think I would have had a weight of several you know at least 10 picks until until my next pick came up and he was kind of the last of like that we know this guy's a starter type of running backs and disappointed to have him disappointed with how he's played so far they just I watched them play in week one against Denver. That was the national TV late game on CBS last week. And it was just, you know, run into the middle of the line, get two yards, fall down, get back up, do it again. And it's, they're just not getting much of a push for him. Did, he did break off a 16-yarder in this game, so at least a little bit of an encouraging sign. But I don't know. I don't, I don't love this Baltimore offense after two weeks. No, it's, it's looking really bad. I mean, and Gary Kubiak seemed to have the offensive line blocking very effectively last season but he's gone now maybe the scheme being different has been a problem I'm not really sure where these issues lie but this was a a unit that was not good in 2013 so pretty big turnaround last year maybe they're just kind of backsliding back into that 2013 form Dallas 20 Philadelphia 10 Eagles losing at home to a Cowboys team led by Brandon Whedon once Tony Romo left this game with a fractured clavicle Probably an 8-10 to 10 week absence for Romo, already without Des Bryant perhaps for the same amount of time. I mean, Brandon Whedon and Terrence Williams just can't be stopped. You can try to contain them, but even that could be uh, really difficult. 4 for 84 and a score on 7 targets. Jason Witten on 2 sprained ankles and a sprained knee, 7 for 56 on 8 targets. 
Lance Dunbar leading the way as far as pass catching backs go. Three catches for 45 yards on five targets. The running game was still a mess. Joseph Randall, 18 carries for 51 yards. How about a long of six yards? Darren McFadden, 10 for 31 with a long of nine. Romo was 18 of 27 for 195. No TDs before he left. It was Whedon going 7 of 7 for 73 yards and the touchdown to Williams that ultimately pushed the Cowboys over the top. The Eagles offense has is just been crazy bad, especially at running the ball. Offensive line play now a major concern. DeMarco Murray had 13 carries for two yards, five catches for 53 yards. Salvage what would have been just a horrendous day and made it only a bad one. As far as the pass catchers go, it's only Jordan Matthews right now. Six for 80 and a score on nine targets. Sam Bradford, 23 of 37 for 224. The TD to Matthews and two picks. A QBR of 5.3. And I really still don't know what that means. It just seems like a bad number. I just don't know how offensively bad a 5.3 QBR really is. I think QBR is on a scale of 0 to 100, right? I believe it is. It's not like golf, so you don't want to have the low score. Um, so I don't think that's very good. No, and Jordan Matthews, a guy you touched on, I, I really, really like him. He's someone that I definitely undervalued in drafts and kind of stayed away from. But I mean, after a huge week one, 10 catches for 102 yards, he follows up with 80 yards and a score. Um, and he looks like the clear number one um, who Sam Bradford was looking to, especially late in this game. Um, you know, the biggest story is the Philly running game. I mean, there's no lanes at all. I mean, Brandon Whedon outrushed DeMarco Murray in this game. I think we all had that projected. Yeah, 13 carries for two yards. Murray was in the negatives until late in the fourth quarter. The Eagles drove down, and and he finally, I think, broke off. That's not even the right term for this, but he broke off a nine-yard scamper to to get into positive territory. And until then, so basically for over three quarters of the game, Ryan Matthews was Philly's leading rusher with zero yards. I've got very heavy exposure to DeMarco Murray in my important leagues, to Stake League, Stopa League, NFFC Leagues. I've got him everywhere that matters and so far it's been a disaster those teams have actually held their own thus far uh, so there's still room for for further growth if murray can come back and be anything close to the player i expected i don't even know where to begin i don't the know thing about him is do you keep starting him you have I, you, to, you right? have to. You, the investment is there you almost you can't just pull him it, it'd take it would take a really a really good group of backs like depth wise to consider sitting him down i mean if you maybe you drafted geo bernard or something like that in like the sixth or the seventh round and you know you don't have to start him every week you don't have a flex or something like that i don't think i'd play geo bernard over demarco murray you just i can't I, you, at some point you have to think he's going to snap out of this right i mean if it gets to like weeks four and five and he's still rushing for 30 yards a game then then maybe we can talk but you got to think Philadelphia is this is the number one thing they're going to address this week, right? Yeah, they're going to come back with some kind of adjusted game plan. But you talk about a guy, 21 carries through two games for 11 yards, averaging a half yard per carry. He's got 75 yards from scrimmage and two TDs. Without those two TDs in the opener, I mean, the DeMarco Murray panic levels would be off the charts. People would be yeah, jumping off of buildings. Really. And do you think it's just a bad fit for him in this offense? I mean, you look at the running backs that Chip Kelly has had over the years. We'll go back to Oregon. You know, you're LaMichael James, Kenyon Barnard, DeAnthony Thomas, like all these guys that are like 5'9 and, you know, scat backs who can sprint up the middle. And that's it's like the opposite of what DeMarco Murray profiles as. But at the same time, for his size, I mean, DeMarco Murray is very agile and, and reasonably fast, I think. So it, on paper, there's really no reason this should be happening. Is, is it more of an offensive line issue? I think it's mostly the line. And I also think when you're talking about 21 carries, you could just have 
the worst stretch of 21 carries ever in terms of, of blocking holes not being there whatever it is well, and that's like, the thing it's not like demarco murray doesn't look like demarco murray it's like it's it's hard to to accumulate negative yardage like it's like going into that one of those final fourth quarter drives he was at like negative seven eight nine yards right i mean you're you're taking losses on runs you know it's not like you, it's not like he's not hitting the hole hard and in, in you know getting tripped up by shoestring tackles like yeah. he's getting stuffed there's no in hole. The backfield he's not even making it to the line of scrimmage yeah the plays are getting blown up guys right. in the offensive line are getting just worked and, and, and the way this that spotting seems to work most of the time in the nfl is they almost always give the running back the benefit of the doubt like it is very hard even on plays where you know for example a, a toss sweep you know and a, the running back gets hit in the backfield it almost always seems like to tack on an extra yard or two for like for quote-unquote forward progress where you know oftentimes it looks like they're being tackled six yards behind the line of scrimmage when in reality they'll spot it three or four yards back so I think it's an offensive line issue just because of the accumulation of negative yardage is pretty much unforeseen from a player and a team that we thought at least was Philadelphia's caliber you take, take a look at the Eagles schedule here for a second I mean things are going to be difficult for them on the road against the Jets coming up here in, in week three but ownership of DeMarco Murray on DraftKings is going to start to bottom out, right? I mean, you might have a handful of sharps who, who like him simply because they think all the, the all, all the masses are going to stay away. Matchup against the Redskins after that, and then home against the Saints in Week 5. I think the bounce back is coming. It might not be a massive one against the Jets, but I could see him getting 70 or 80 yards on 15 carries and getting in the end zone again and catching some passes. Like The role should be there. I, I, just, I just think... We're at the point where Chip Kelly can still make adjustments. It's only week two. He can get some, I don't know, some new schemes going, some new play designs, whatever it takes. He's going to figure out a way to get this right. If you're drafting today, though, or if you're making a trade, you're giving up DeMarco Murray. You're certainly selling low, as low as he probably could. What would you reasonably take back in the return? Or do you just say, no, I believe in this guy because I bought into him two plus weeks ago and 21 carries is not going to change my opinion of what I think this player is in this offense. I guess I wouldn't necessarily be actively trying to trade him. If someone's willing to give you a decent deal for it, I think you certainly have to consider it. But like you said, his value could not be any lower at this point. So you have to realize that if, if, you're, if you're a DeMarco Murray owner and people are flooding you with trade offers, you're probably going to get lowballed 95% of the time. So I mean, I, I don't know if you want to come up with like a hypothetical type of player you're looking back for for Murray. I mean, if would you would you be willing to take like I don't know like like a second like for example a Gio Bernard type of guy like do you think that's even like too much to offer I don't think it's too much to offer I, I think I think you got a chance of getting a few panicky owners to accept it if you've an zero two Demarco Murray owner and they're looking at Gio Bernard getting that workload over Hill Hill coughing up a couple fumbles they they might actually consider something like that I mean the the worst they can do is say no going into this week we had Murray as our seventh ranked running back I imagine Marshawn Lynch will pass him Carlos Hyde even coming off a disappointing game will pass him maybe LaShawn McCoy passes him too I think when it's all said and done you shuffle up again there's still probably only 10 or 11 backs at most that many owners would prefer over to Marco Murray which is a lot I mean like that says a lot about who we think this guy is going to be given just how awful they've been at running the ball and it's not it's not as though like ryan matthews comes in and rips off carries for five plus yards or anything like that either it's team based with with good personnel so that that just tells me that it's entirely a blocking issue right and most of the blame seems to be being pointed at that philly offensive line at chip kelly more so than demarco murray and i think that's the right move like you said it's not it's not like he's coming in and, and struggling individually there just aren't holes there at all and there aren't holes for any running backs in the system um yeah i don't i mean how do they get him more involved? It, he's he's kind of, he's been a factor in the passing game. It's just 
you want that as a compliment to what he does in the running game. And right now, the, the vast majority of his production has come you know, as a receiver. I think you find your receivers that you like as blockers, and you run screens to that side of the field with Murray and just try to get him to make big plays for you out there. I think that's right. one thing you can do scheme-wise. It's different. I also think that's a good way to attack the Jets anyway. The Jets should be a pretty good run defense, so you want to find ways to get DeMarco Murray out in space. You start doing that, maybe you can open some things up on the inside it's been a, a really disappointing two weeks, probably the most disappointing two-week performance of any player we have seen so far uh, this season. Green Bay, 27, Seattle, 17, as I mentioned at the beginning. This is one of the things I'm very happy about coming away from week two. And I agree with Marshawn Lynch's mother, by the way. Daryl Bevel's play calling is awful. I mean, Jimmy Graham was, what, targeted twice? One catch for 11 yards? I think Luke Wilson was targeted more than Jimmy Graham. How do you not build your offense around Jimmy Graham if you're Seattle? I mean, you've got Marshawn Lynch as your your foundation in your running game, but how does every pass play you have not feature Jimmy Graham? It's puzzling, too, because this is not an elite Green Bay secondary. Um, and you, you obviously like Jimmy Graham against almost any matchup, and he was invisible for most of the game. And they... The Sunday night uh, football cameras pan to him, I think, as much as anybody else. And it's just it's a lot of standing around, a lot of just you know, being a decoy mostly for this offense. And and Seattle really didn't have too much of a problem moving in, especially in the second half when they uh, they were able to take the lead 17-26. to 26. Um, But, yeah, Graham really wasn't a part of that at all. Like you said, he had that, that 11-yard catch, but that was about it. Wilson was, was you know, kind of relying on his, on his own ability to make plays a little bit more. And, and it worked out for – three quarters of the game but when you're when you're leading receivers doug baldwin I just, you just can't expect that to to translate to wins yeah baldwin i think is a an undervalued like full point ppr commodity because it seems like week in week out he is the most consistent receiver they have but that's not necessarily an endorsement of him as someone that you want to lean on week in and week out i just i thought jimmy graham would be used almost the exact same way the Saints used them, and that would make Seattle so much more dangerous, so much more balanced offensively. The only way Seattle started to really move the ball effectively was when Russell Wilson started to run. I mean, once that started to happen, things opened up quite a bit. I thought it would open things up inside for Marshawn Lynch, and it didn't. But I think the other issue here is that Green Bay just played heavily against the run. Micah Hyde seemed to do a good job on Graham, but Daryl Bevel did the best job on Graham as far as that Packers defense goes. Yeah, absolutely. Just a... a odd play calling from from Daryl Bevel throughout the night I think Seattle found themselves in a lot of third and long situations just not kind of uncharacteristic from this offense nobody really seems to be panicking though in in Seattle I mean they're 0-2 all of a sudden the Rams don't look very scary after after falling to Washington Um, you know the Niners got killed (sighs) San Francisco's bad San Francisco is bad Arizona looks very good and yeah, it's far too early to start speculating on, on any playoff implications, but that Arizona has a two-game lead on Seattle already, and obviously that can be made up very quickly. They'll meet twice this season. Um, but, I mean, are you are you worried at all if you're a Seattle fan? I'm, I'm worried that Cam Chancellor is just going to keep holding out because I think without Chancellor, this defense is a little bit softer. I think you can actually do some damage. This is one of the best games Aaron Rodgers has ever played against the Seattle defense. They've matched up four times going back to the fail Mary game and by far the 25 of 33 for 249 that he had on Sunday night was the best performance we've seen from him. Uh, James Starks ran really well in this one. Eddie Lacy left with an ankle injury. X-rays came back negative. Further tests coming Monday, but it uh, looked like he got rolled up pretty good maybe an ankle sprain or even a high ankle sprain which if it's the latter for a running back that can often be a four-week injury I think James Starks may be the most valuable back available on the waiver wire right now in many leagues 
So I would suspect that he'll go for a significant portion of Fab. Over 100 yards from scrimmage in total. Caught four balls for 11 yards as well. Uh, James Jones had a TD taken back. Had one catch. It was a touchdown catch for 29 yards. It was a free play from Aaron Rodgers. I mean, the Seahawks had all sorts of trouble in the first half, especially staying onside. Michael Bennett single-handedly maybe cost the Seattle uh, defense this game. Yeah, I thought that Green Bay did a really good job, as, as Aaron Rodgers always does, of, of hard counting and, and drawing those offsides and then just basically giving himself a free play. I mean, he's such a freak when it comes to efficiency that he doesn't like to take those chances downfield, especially with Jordy Nelson out. Um, but you know, when, when there's nothing on the line as far as interceptions and, and risk of that, he's much more willing to air it out. And we saw it work out multiple times. Um, I forget who it was that drew the penalty. I think it was was it Ty Montgomery. I think I think it was Montgomery or Adams uh, with Richard Sherman on a coverage. Right, I think like it was a fifty like a yeah. fifty yard pass Rogers interference just, penalty. Just whipped it downfield, knowing that there was a decent chance it was going to get picked. And yeah, I think I think Montgomery got hit well well before the ball was there, and, and that was a big game changer at that point. I did think Green Bay almost relied a little bit too much on that hard count it didn't seem like in the second half like obviously they had a play call but it seemed like they were going up to the line with the intent of drawing them off sides before anything else and and it got to the point where they you know they started getting late in the play clock they were burning timeouts and I don't know I mean I, I obviously it did work out and it paid dividends for them in this game but I think I think Rodgers was like was really really trying to, to draw Seattle off sides almost to to a fault in the second half. Yeah, this seemed to be a huge part of their game plan, probably because it was so effective though right. in the first half. Uh, Richard Rodgers got into the end zone on this one on this game, three for twenty three on four targets. I think week in week out he's going to be tough to rely on, even though there is an expanding role there. Ty Montgomery seems like was a little more involved, partially because Devonte Adams left this game for a while with an ankle injury of his own. He did return though, so we'll keep an eye on Adams' status here throughout the upcoming week but as I mentioned before I think James Starks likely going to be the best running back available in many leagues where he wasn't handcuffed by a Lacey owner or simply stashed away by an owner wondering if uh, if Lacey might go down if Starks could be a top 10 back as long as he's the starter yeah I, I, as much as I love Eddie Lacey I think James Starks is just as good of a fit for this office I mean he's, he's faster he's uh, probably a, works just as well as a receiver um, a little bit more dynamic a guy who can get down the field a little bit quicker than any lace he can so I don't see Green Bay missing much of a step here and if Devontae Adams ankle injury turns out to be anything more than just a you know a little nick then then they could be in trouble um, do you know, what's the timetable on Brian Bulaga obviously not a fantasy relevant player unless you're in a, a left tackle league um, but <laughs> I mean is he expected to be back for Monday night I haven't seen any timetables on him, but I, I think their offensive line actually played pretty well overall. I, the Seahawks weren't blitzing. It's no. something they pointed out on the broadcast last night, probably because you, just, you don't want to blitz Aaron Rodgers. He's mobile enough to escape, and beyond that, he can just make a good, quick decision and absolutely burn you with guys after the catch. I mean, Randall Cobb looked more like Randall Cobb this week. The usage was up. 11 targets, 8 catches, 116 yards, nearly scored. Missed a, a TD by about a half yard in this one, and, and it seemed like he recovered pretty well from, from a couple big hits, too, on that play where he almost scored. Got hit by two or three Seattle defenders at the stripe, got up right away, didn't seem to be favoring his arm. more than anybody. I feel like hit hard. Every, every time he catches the ball, he seems to be getting laid out. I think it's just because he, he makes a lot of his catches in the middle of the field. You yeah, know, If you have true. bigger receivers who play on the outside, they're going to get out of bounds a little bit more. They're not going to get squared up as often. But yeah, when you have safeties collapsing in, you got other nickel uh, corners maybe playing inside too. You have multiple guys converging on players like Cobb getting hit mm-hmm. harder in the middle of the field. But he, he just looked physically a lot better than he did in week one. So a really encouraging sign, I think, for Randall Cobb owners out there. 
Yeah, definitely. An encouraging game from Green Bay. I didn't think they really brought their A game, I guess. I mean, it, at, at that first drive, they looked really good and then kind of settled things down throughout the middle of the game and when Seattle made their comeback. But it did always feel that they were in control of this one. And you know, maybe that's just me being a little bit biased toward Green Bay. But, I mean, were you, were you worried when, when Seattle took the lead there? No, not really. I don't think I, I was either. I was watching this game at home with my wife, and she's, I mean, a lifelong Packer fan. Family has season tickets, like, gets really excited about games, especially big games like this. And she seemed to be, like, extremely nervous about it. I don't know if it's just because of the track record against Seattle or, or what it was, but I'm, I'm watching this and I'm just going, they're not using Jimmy Graham, so that's fine. Like, thanks for that. And the Packers' run defense actually played really well. I think containing a guy like Russell Wilson is difficult for any, any team. I think that's where you, you have some concerns if you're a Packer fan about the matchup against the Niners in a couple of weeks that Colin Kaepernick has just shredded them before. So that's maybe still a concern. But that they bottled up Marshawn Lynch after Matt Forte ran all over them in week one, I think that bodes well for this defense in future weeks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the the defense is a little, especially the running defense, is, is a little bit of, uh, further ahead of what people expected. Obviously, a couple big turnovers for Seattle in this one. Um, Fred Jackson losing a fumble late in the game probably didn't really matter at that point. Um, you know, with, with Seattle down down two with under two minutes, or excuse me, down ten with under two minutes remaining. Um, but yeah, I mean, this Green Bay this Green Bay defense is hel- is holding up a little bit better than expected. I think the secondary still has some question marks. Seem to be a lot of open receivers running around uh, in week one and and in week two, but. Um, I mean, they're they're the Super Bowl favorite for a reason. I'd actually just read that the odds went down from five to one to three to one now after after this win. Well, I think it's because they have the tiebreaker now over Seattle head to head. So even if Seattle you know rallies back, both these teams win eleven games, twelve games, they end up tied at the end of the season. Having that game at Lambeau versus at Seattle makes a massive difference in terms of your right. chances to get to the Super Bowl. Well, it's just like in you know, Arizona's 2-0. They're looking like you know just as, just as good of a bet to win the NFC West. And you look at the NFC North, and, I mean, Chicago's already out of it. Minnesota doesn't look Horrible great. Detroit now. looks terrible. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it went from being uh, – before the season, I thought the NFC North would be a little more competitive. I mean, Green Bay was the clear favorite, but I thought Detroit and Minnesota could both be eight or nine win teams, and all of a sudden doesn't look quite like that. There's got to be a team right now we're overlooking, though, a team that and Minnesota could easily be that team that's just week one's the anomaly, week two is yeah, more who they true, are, and true. then they become a wild card team. Because if you start thinking about who's likely to be a wild card team in the NFC right now, it's, it's like hard to come up with right. two you teams. Right, you look at it like really Dallas like. is 2-0 and right now, but they figured to not be 2-0 and in the next couple of weeks with Whedon starting. Washington's 1-1, one and one, don't love them. I mean, I, I would almost like shade toward Philly in that division. Yeah, as as I was going to say the like, same thing. Like, I would Even after they lost at home by 10 to Dallas yesterday, I still like the Eagles more than the Cowboys because the Cowboys maybe without Tony Romo and Des Bryant for 8 to 10 weeks. I mean, like that's just a devastating that's blow. That's going to be a brutal team to watch for, for a, a good it, chunk of the season. As good as that defense can be, I, I just think they're, they're like Houston's defense. They're going to spend so much time on the field that they're not going to be nearly as yep. effective as they should be. The one thing I want to ask before we finish up is, um, I think Sporting News wrote an article on it, and I'm sure they weren't the only ones. Um, you know, Brandon Whedon is the guy right now in Dallas. He's, he's the only other option on the roster. But RG3 is sitting out there. He's a guy who went to college in Texas at Baylor. Still kind of a hero around those parts. Any chance whatsoever that Dallas entertains that thought? I think the, the reason why it wouldn't happen is because Griffin hasn't been cut by Washington. I can't imagine Dan Snyder allowing his GM 
to go ahead and, and make a deal like that, trading away Griffin to a team in division. Like I, I think I don't she, I think they are so low on Griffin that they don't like the thought that Griffin could come back to haunt them is like not even a possibility. Like they don't think he's capable of doing that. I, I think they're so split though. Like I feel like that's the kind of thing that GM might want to do, but the ownership doesn't. Like they yeah. like they're such a fractured organization that like just to spite the Cowboys, they would hold on to Griffin even though they don't want him. You know, like that's that's the way I feel that's like they true. would think. Or, that's, that's, that would be a very Washington move. It, yeah, like oh yeah, you know they offered us like a third round pick for him, but we turned it down because we didn't want to help Dallas. Like that's right. just the kind of thing that they would seemingly do. That would be so great from an entertainment perspective. Just oh man, I I would love for that to happen. I don't think I don't think it will happen. Maybe more for money reasons than anything else. I mean, RG three's got that injury. Uh, guarantee in his contract and you know other stipulations that make it pretty unattractive to take on for any team but I mean if you can get a third round pick for him I think I think that's an excellent price it's just a matter of whether Dallas would be willing to take on not only the money that he comes with but also the media circus yeah I mean I think uh, I'm just throwing the third rounder out there as a complete guess I he probably would fetch even less than that at this point oh yeah what do you think about I mean the leverage I I never understand this right like Anquan Bolden going to uh, was, it, was it Baltimore? It was for, two Baltimore for a sixth rounder. For a sixth rounder, yeah. yeah. And then you see that all the time, like guys that you know, very good players going for like fifth, sixth, seventh round picks. Like, do you, you really value these picks that heavily? I, I think it's because teams know that the current team that has the player would cut the player soon, and yeah. that's what they, they just use that leverage accordingly. And I think yes. that's what would happen to Washington if they tried to flip RG three at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that'll be interesting. And uh, I think Whedon played well enough, and we we know what Brandon Whedon's about, but. You know, he, he was seven for seven in this game. I think he played well enough to to at least bide some time in that discussion. But if he comes out in week three and, and throws three picks, then uh, then the, there will certainly be some people calling for RG3 or maybe even someone else to, to go to Dallas. Maybe they can get Kyle Orton to come out of retirement. Uh, Quincy Carter. Well, that's going way back. Oh, yeah. Thank you for listening to the Rotowire Fantasy Football Podcast brought to you by DraftKings.com, the leader in daily fantasy sports. Use the promo code Rotowire when you make your deposit for a free contest entry today. Also, check out Rotowire for free for the next 10 days by going to Rotowire.com slash pod. We'll be back with you on Tuesday. Your backyard's right in our backyard, which means we have hand-picked products that are right for the birds in your neighborhood, like premium bird seed, suet, birdhouses, and feeders. Stop by your local Ace and get everything you need to attract the birds you want, including Ace Wild Bird Food, on sale now. Now through Tuesday only, when you buy two 20-pound bags of wild bird food, get a third bag free, only at Ace, the helpful place. Offer valid through February 28th at participating stores.